We're thrilled to be awarding the 2012 Book uh, Prize to Richard Sennett tonight. He's the second recipient of the award, which we launched last year. The Book Prize goes to the author of the nonfiction book that most effectively deepens our understanding of community, how people connect to people. This year, for the first time, we also awarded a Poetry Prize to honor the U.S. poet whose original poem best explores how people connect to place. If you get a chance, we hope you look at the, uh, the flip side of the program we gave you. Our winner is Massachusetts poet Jody Zorgdrager, whose poem, Coming Back, It Comes Back, appears in the back of the program. As I said, please give it a read. It's really, really lovely. I'm very pleased, as always, to give a welcome to Ms. Kimberly Freeman, who made tonight possible of the Southern California Gas Company. Thank you. Thank you, Gregory and Zocalo, for putting this evening together. Again, I'm Kimberly Freeman. I'm Director of Community Relations, so now you see why I'm standing here, for Southern California Gas Company. And I wanted to let you know that Southern California Gas Company is delighted to be a sponsor of tonight's event and the second annual Zocalo Book Prize. Now, this idea of people in place is very essential to running a utility in Southern California, so I love the fact that we have the opportunity to create uh, dialogue and exchange on an idea that really is at the heart of our business. Tonight, the prize honors authors who, an author who is exploring how we can get better at living with one another and what community and place mean in our world today. And as I looked at that sentence, I thought, how timely, given that it's 2012, 20 years later after the LA civil unrest. Last, uh, just 20 years ago, we were all asking ourselves the question of, can we really get along? So. The idea of community was broadly defined by 100 authors whose books are judges considered this year. Entrants included economists and video game designers, lawyers and scientists, literary theorists, and world leaders. Our finalists wrote about a wide range of subjects from translation and technology to marriage and love. But it's the sociologist Richard Sennett, with whom all of our judges agreed, wrote the book that most effectively deepened our understanding of community. In Together, The Rituals, Pleasures, and Politics of Cooperation, he argues that cooperation is a craft that can and must be learned if diverse societies are to get along. Richard Sennett is one of our great sociologists and most eminent thinkers on cities, labor, and culture the subjects he's considered and written about for over 40 years. He's a professor at the London School of Economics and New York University and a visiting scholar at Cambridge. As one of our book prize judges noted, he has written many influential books, but the latest may be his finest. Please give a warm welcome and congrat congratulations to Richard Sennett. We are delighted to present you with the 2012 Zocalo Book Prize. <laughs> Thank you very much. This is good. Yeah. That's our picture. That's our picture. Uh, thank you so much for awarding me this, this prize. This is a wonderful organization. And uh, its uh, aims are, are really the sort of thing that my book is trying to, uh, uh, to celebrate and to understand how we might better uh, further in uh, today's society. Uh, I thought I'd, I'd talk to you for about 
40, 45 minutes maybe about what's some of the themes in the book. Uh, and uh, it's gone all over the airwaves, I mean. <laughs> and um, then maybe we can have some discussion with each other and then a drink, which sounds, this sounds <laughs> such an enlightened organization. Um, I, I, uh, the subject cooperation is something that I have been interested in and involved in uh, long before I actually uh, started uh, studying social life. Um, I was, my, my early training was as a musician and probably one of the great um, um, traumas for young musicians is when they first start to have to seriously play with each other. It's particularly a trauma for little hotshots who think all they're going to do is, you know, belt out their part and uh, everything will be fine. And it brings them up short uh, to have to play with other people, learn how to listen to them and to cooperate. And every young musician goes through this, I did. It knocks a lot of the ego out of you. Uh, uh, because there are other egos involved. Although um, music very special activity, that same kind of, um, of naturalness of cooperation is something we, we all learn in, if we play team sports, because you've got to cooperate in order to compete against others. In a little more serious way, uh, for anybody who's fought in uh, the military, the uh, cooperation is a, uh, a requisite for, for survival on the, in, in the battlefield. Um, we don't know whether cooperation is programmed into our genes, but we know that from uh, the earliest uh, moments of life uh, that young infants um, uh, begin to cooperate with uh, the people who are feeding and taking care of them. And that fact signals something that's really important about understanding cooperation, which is, the best definition of it I know, is uh, working with other people to do what you can't do for yourself. It's something that's functional to us. And we begin doing when we're small, you know, from the day we're born. Uh, it's how, how we survive physically. It's how we learn from, from parents and teachers. It's a natural function to us. And yet, as we know, in modern society, cooperation is something that rather than seeming um, something we need to do, seems like a kind of moral gift that we make to others. It's something that expresses how, how good we are, that we want to cooperate with other people rather than need to cooperate with them. And once it's cast in that form, cooperation gets into trouble, because what if I don't want to cooperate with you? I won't do it. Um, you all know that this is a terrible problem politically. This is a country whose political system has broken down by the inability of people 
to cooperate politically. And although I am, uh, I'm as left a Democrat as you can imagine, I don't think this is only a problem of Republicans. We can talk about that later. Um, but, you know, we have a political system in which uh, cooperation means we're not working together to end very difficult times. There are other ways to understand what this breakdown is about. A study done by UNICEF of, of youngsters in schools in 22 developed countries came to, among its many conclusions, uh, some insights about cooperation which are pretty disturbing for Americans. We are, of these 22, at the very bottom of the pile in terms of the desire of students to study with each other. These are kids 8 to 10 years old. Um, we're at the top of the pile, unfortunately, in the kind of bullying behavior that um, it takes it out on, on people who are other youngsters who are doing well in school. There's something about our institutions at that very early time of life in which American culture predisposes people to withdraw from one another, look at cooperation as a form of weakness, and look at aggression towards others as a more durable way of relating to, um, to other kids. Um, in my book, my incredibly inexpensive, beautifully produced <laughs> book, I try and lay out some of this data in greater detail too. Another problem in adult life that um, uh, where we see that we're, we're having trouble with cooperation, and this is not unique to the U.S. It's also true in, in, in countries like Britain, is what's sometimes called the silo problem, which is that in the large, in large businesses or large organizations, um, there are increasingly a kind of isolation of people in silos, you know, these grain elevators, uh, who don't share, don't communicate very well, um, tend, tend to hoard what they know as a kind of uh, 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 possession rather than work in a common effort. And what we know about silo effects, they've existed for a long time. But curiously, with the advent of uh, the technological workplace, particularly with email, that silo effects seem to increase. That rather than having face-to-face -face kind of water cooler conversations that allow people to interact and share, that one of the bad effects of email has been that it's tended to uh, make people think more in a kind of silo-like way. What they're willing to share, what they're going to hoard with each other. It's a very formalized procedure that's diminishing cooperation and informal cooperation in the workplace. And a third kind of difficulty that appears in, um, in how we cooperate is closer to your concerns, that is, cooperation in community. 
My uh, shop at, in London has been charting for the last 20 years um, how much people actually um, uh, believe that their neighbors are cooperative, uh, uh, that people will be willing to help each other out. We've done it through asking questions like, if your house caught, I know this is Mickey Mouse, but that's what sociology is. If your house caught on fire, do you think your neighbors would uh, come and help you? And we've charted over the last 20 years since we were doing lots of questions like this. An increasing belief among people, uh, both in the States and in Britain, that their neighbors would not come to their assistance. And this has a kind of reflexive turn to it. Because if you don't think your neighbor is going to help you out in an emergency, you're not disposed to help them out. We've been studying this problem in lots and lots of, of forms. Everybody in principle is for communal cooperation. I mean, very few people who say, no, I, I absolutely want to live by myself. I never want to be helped by anybody or help anybody else. But when you get a little fi more fine-grained way of exploring people's attitudes, they are, in fact, rather doubtful about um, each other's uh, desires to do this. And it's in the community level something we're seeing in many institutions, which is a diminution of trust between people, which is absolutely key to making cooperation work. So there's a problem. And the question is, what can we do about this problem? How can we get people to recognize that this genetic, natural phenomenon, which is to turn to other people, uh, uh, to do what you can't do for yourself, to help each other out. How can we strengthen that? How can we create more trust among people? And that's what the subject of my book is about. And I've taken a very particular uh, slant on this. Because I'm interested in communities, I'm interested in the kinds of difficult cooperation that uh, require people to work with or rely on people they don't know, uh, people uh, who are strangers to them, or even people they don't like. Because in the real world of community life, uh, particularly city communities, urban communities, a mixture of people who are very different, means that cooperation is not simply something that happens by saying, we're all in this together, we're all the same, we all share the same values, we'll work together. Because these kinds of communities are more different than that. Um, mixture racially, uh, ethnically, class, in terms of lifestyle, that kind of cooperation is demanding. And the focus of what I'm doing in my book is to try and look at the skills that people need to do that kind of difficult, demanding cooperation. That is to cooperate with people who are different. Um, and 
What are, I'm going to describe to you three of these skills tonight. Uh, but as a preface to this, I'd like to say something that I've learned from psychologists about how cooperation in, in the human life cycle uh, begins to be something more than simple solidarity. That is, what's built into us that makes the act of cooperation, this kind of demanding, difficult cooperation, something that has a psychological as well as a sociological, social dimension. And psychologists signal two, two phenomena that um, make this kind of demanding cooperation uh, psychologically fraught. The first is something that seems to happen to young children around the age of four or five when they realize that um, they have a distinctive self, not just that they have personal desires, but that they, are, they have a personality that's distinctive to themselves. And it's, I mean, these are just, you know, arbitrary dates, but it seems to be about that time in the life cycle. And what happens at that point with kids is that when they, when they cooperate with other kids, they begin to feel that there's a loss of autonomy by cooperating with others. The cooperation becomes a kind of zero-sum game in which what I give to you is a kind of challenge to my, the, my sense of myself. And that's something seems to be rooted in human psychology at quite an early stage. You can't resolve this problem. This is what I've learned from these psychologists. It's a matter of constantly thinking about the balance between what you give to others and what uh, you may be losing thereby in yourself. And as we mature, it's a question of trying to sort out um, whether what we give to each other comes back to us in some way that gives us a new sense of self. So that's one kind of developmental ambiguity between autonomy and cooperation. And the other is between cooperation and competition. And here psychologists have something quite interesting to tell us about what seem to be absolute opposites to us. Um, that is, you either cooperate or you can compete. You can't do both at the same time. What they found when children learn, get, start playing group games and get good at it around the ages of five or six, is not only that kids learn how to do team playing in a reasonable way, but that they also begin to cooperate with those they're competing against in a very particular way, that they begin setting rules for uh, what the games they're going to play are being like. It seems at this point in life that all of us first became, attenu uh, became attentive to the phenomenon of cheating. Right? And if you think about it, um, uh, if you put a value on cheating, say that's a bad thing, what you really mean is that you and your competitors 
have to agree on a set of rules by which everybody plays fairly by, which is a form of cooperation. So this seeming opposition between competition and cooperation is actually a kind of ambiguity. It contains some things that join together and again, constantly through people's lives, they're having to work out what are the ground rules for competing with each other. Uh, put in a kind of formal way, the sense of justice that develops among young people around the age of four or five makes the relationship between cooperation, competition, much more complicated than simply thinking of them as opposites. Now, what I want to describe to you are three skills that human beings can develop to, um, to deal with these kinds of complexities. And I'm going to speak to you in college professor mode. I'll try and make this clear. But they're, it's, they're complicated issues. And I'll give you the names of these three skills. They have to do with dialogical cooperation. I'll explain all this nonsense. <laughs> Dialogic, dialogical cooperation with uh, the use of subjunctive expression and with the practice of empathy. And I'm going to try and make each of these clear to you. A dialogical skill is the fancy name that we use for good listening skills. And to understand what a good listening skill is, you want to contrast it to something which is a dialectical form of expression with another person. Dialogics and dialectics are uh, opposing ways of interacting with people. In a dialectical form of expression, um, you say X, and I say, well, no, 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 that's not quite right. I'll, I'll say Y. We go back and forth, and then we come together at something which kind of synthesis between the two. We reach agreement. The essential thing about that kind of exchange is that there's closure. You know, we've talked, we've argued back and forth, but we've arrived at something which is an agreement between us. Dialogics is a different kind of experience of interaction. Um, when you say something, and I'm in dialogical mode, when I say something and you're in dialogical mode, you're trying to understand beneath the surface of my words, what I really intend to say. It goes to the fact that oftentimes all of us don't really know what we mean. You know, we talk, we, if you're a university professor, you can talk endlessly, hoping that you know, someday it will all come clear. But all of us do that. And the listening skill that's involved in dialogics has to do with listening for what's behind this curtain or surface of words. What is tr somebody trying really to get at? Uh, and to do that takes an 
an increasing amount of skill. Um, when somebody says something outrageous, for instance, I've, I've had this often uh, as an interviewer of white working class people who will say the most incredible racist things. And rather than losing your cool, you want to know where this is coming from. You want to hear what's behind the words. And often behind it is something quite different. People are talking, for instance, about their own class problems, but they use words that are all about race. You know, it's a very common phenomenon that we, we get when we interview uh, 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 some kinds of white working class people. So the skill in listening there is both one of self-restraint, but also paying attention, and it takes a very particular form, which is paying attention, finding which of those words that somebody uses is so fraught or ambiguous for them that it points to something they can't say. And a very good pastor will learn how to do this. Good psychoanalyst might. I doubt it, but they might. Uh, um, and in a conversation, that's good diplomats are, are geniuses at this. The skill is to focus on what are called these lock words, the key in a lock, that turn to something that is meant but for which another human being can't find words. Now, what I'd say to you is that in dealing with people who are different, in practicing complex cooperation, this kind of dialogical skill needs to be developed. If you take things at face value, with people who are complex, whom you don't understand, oftentimes you don't get very far in interacting with them. The second skill I want to talk to you about has to do with how you express yourself. And here, let's use another pair of uh, terms about self-expression. One is, oh, and just to finish this thought on the first, dialogics doesn't lead to closure in the same way that dialectics does. You know, When you and I argue back and forth and we come up with something we agree on, we've got closure. When I'm looking for those lock words and trying to find what's behind this veil of surface language, there may be no resolution, you know? I may get deeper and deeper and deeper into what you mean to say and vice versa, but we might not come to any agreement. So dialogics is open-ended, whereas dialectics is closed-ended. About um, this second skill uh, of how you express yourself to others, you can again make another kind of pairing. And it's a difference that I describe in my book between uh, declarative ways of expressing yourself to others and using the subjunctive voice. Declarative seems to us very clear. Uh, uh, this is what I think. You know, you make a forceful argument. And what you're looking for is indeed clarity, to be absolutely, to get yourself out of that kind of unresolved state and to be able to be precise and clear. Now, we think about that as a virtue. 
We should be as clear to other people as possible, right? Not so. Not so. Be, um, the opposite side of this is use of the subjunctive voice is more hesitant. I would have thought perhaps it might be. And the difference between those two is that that subjunctive voice is opening up a space of ambiguity where you and the other person can keep talking more. If I say to you, this is absolutely, you know, and, and I say it well, this is what I mean, uh, I you can either agree or disagree, but what I've foreclosed is exchange. Whereas when I use the subjunctive form of expression, I would have thought perhaps, um, maybe, um, I'm allowing room for us uh, to inter interact. This isn't just a distinction, a linguistic distinction. My, my uh, uh, dearly lamented uh, late friend Bernard Williams, a philosopher, talked about the fetish of assertion. That when we seek for clarity, right, we make a fetish of assertion, what we're really doing is unleashing a kind of aggression against other people. We want to dominate them. Right? Because we, you know, here it is. It's clear. It's tight. All of that sort of stuff. That's a way of saying to somebody else, oh, okay, I submit. You know, you've got it, you've got it all taped, you know. And for him it's a mode of power. Clarity is a mode of power. Whereas the use of the subjunctive is something that doesn't release aggression in that fashion. I've seen this, I, I mean, I've, I, in an earlier phase of my life, I worked as a labor negotiator for, uh, as a, to make money. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, as a labor arbitrator. And uh, I saw this all, all the time. That when you get in, into a, uh, um, a room and both sides are locked into very clear positions which they've worked out you know, back down to the last detail, that negotiation is going to fail. There's no place to go. You have to f unlock the clarity. You have to muddy up both sides. You have to make them think, well, maybe in order for them to have any kind of exchange. So there is a virtue to speaking in the subjunctive. Um, every time I watch things like hard talk, I don't know if you respond the same way, or these gabbling geese on, on uh, CNN, you know, these, they all have their opinions and so on. I, I can't remember. David Gergen, you know the ones I mean. They're, 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 and they're all precise and clear. And they're not talking to each other. You know? They're absolutely not a conversation. It's like a kind of opera in which one person comes <laughs> forward, does their solo, then the next one comes forward and does their solo. It's a, there's no exchange. Whereas if one of them were to say, you know, I really don't know what I think, they'd have a discussion. 
So that's what this contrast between declarative voice and subjunctive voice is about. And what I would say again about this in terms of cooperation is that, as I found when I did this uh, labor negotiation stuff, that you get further in getting people in the case of labor negotiation, people who are hostile to each other, to cooperate by muddying the waters than you do by clarifying things. This is a very important issue because we put such a premium on clarity as a virtue in itself. And it is, as Bernard Williams says, it can become a fetish which becomes a mode of domination. And the third skill that I would uh, like to talk to you about is how do we imagine the other person with whom we're engaged in an interaction? And here again, there's another pairing um, we can make. A contrast between sympathy and empathy. These are two very different ways of who are you? What are you about? When you feel sympathy for something, the classic case of this is in Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. He sees somebody fall over in the street and he feels a pain in his own knee. And he reaches out to help that person. Uh, he has a sympathetic pain. And what's happened there is he's identified with someone, someone else's need. And that's the essence of sympathy, that it works by identification. I put myself in your place. It is a deep Judeo-Christian moral value as well, right there, but for the grace of God, etc. go I. But the notion is that I've got to be able to feel what you're feeling. And that's the identification is the root of, of sympathy. Empathy is something a little cooler and a little tougher. I see you fall down on the street and I wonder why you tripped. Now you may think this is heartless, right? I should be just going over there and helping you out. Uh, but I might not be able to help you out very well that way because I wouldn't have much understanding about uh, what had happened to you. I need to be curious about what you're going through. And this distinction between sympathy and empathy is between identifying, I can feel what you're feeling, and then wondering about who you are, what you're feeling. And that kind of empathy, which is what we, uh, in science labs, for instance, it's that kind of empathy that makes scientific experiment go forward, is sort of curious about why did this test tube blow up? rather than going, oh my God, you know, are you hurt? Um, and I would say in social situations that empathy is a skill. I'm not putting sympathy down, but I'm saying that empathy is a skill that we need when we're dealing with people whom we don't understand, who are really different from ourselves. Indeed, there's again a kind of political element to this which is 
say I'm a social, middle-class social worker going into a poor neighborhood, people telling me their problems, and I go, oh, you poor thing, I, it must be horrible for you. I, you know, I feel your pain, remember that, the Clinton thing? You know, in a way, that's like saying anything you've experienced, I can understand. Nothing is foreign to me. I can get it all. Whereas by saying, hmm, so what happened? I'm actually honoring you by saying, I don't understand everything in your life. I'm not all understanding, all powerful, and so on. So empathy also, as well as scientific way, it has, it also has this kind of ethical dimension. And what I wanted to argue with you, to you tonight is that these three skills, dialogics, subjunctive expression, and an empathic address to others, are the skills we need to be able to cooperate in difficult situations with people we don't know, we don't understand, or we don't like. Now, let me just say as a kind of wrap-up to this, I've just gotten started, but I, since I've gotten the, the three-minute sign, I'm going to finish, that this is a particular issue for people who do community organizing. Because what we're seeing increasingly in communities, I don't know Los Angeles very well, but certainly in New York and Chicago, which I, I know very well, the old notion that you had a community that was all of people who were the same is a thing of the past. We're getting really mixed communities, which I think is a good thing. But for organizers, the old notions of getting people to cooperate that are based on the notion of solidarity, we're all, we're all the same, we're all in this together, we're all being, a, you know, so on. We need a clear strategy, etc. All of those techniques get in the way of getting all these different kinds of people to actually pay attention to each other and interact with each other. So what I've argued in my book is that for people who are, like all of us, interested in community, what we need to do is take seriously that these are communities which r require very sophisticated cooperation skills in order to be organized. Much more sophisticated skills than simply finding issues that everybody in the community comes together as though they were one. So where this ends up for me, and this is an intellectual argument in my book, but it also has a very practical resonance, is I think if you're on the left, and I hope you all are, <laughs> doing community organizing, that what we want is to practice cooperation rather than solidarity. You see how this works? That's where this goes, that we want to practice ways of cooperating across these barriers of difference rather than scrubbing them out in the name of solidarity. And that's the communal politics in my book. Well, I'd love, I'm just on time. So uh, thank you for being so attentive. I'd, lo I'd love to talk to you about this. Thank, Thank you. you.
What do you think about um, the Occupy movement, and how do you feel they succeeded, and how do you feel they did? I feel really good about them, <laughs> and um, I, I mean, I was uh, involved in the ones in London, not in this, in, in this country, so what I say to you, I guess, is or isn't true here. What was amazing about the Occupy movement in London, which was around St. Paul's Cathedral, it was the same, they took over a space, you know, that they weren't supposed to be in and so on, was a mixture of people who came there. It wasn't the usual, you know, community organizer, you know, you know, ex-Trotskyite or pre-Trotskyite, you know what I mean. They were all sorts of people. There were students, of course. We have a very high unemployment rate in London, and lots of middle-aged unemployed people came. And we have a lot of elderly uh, 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 pensioners, people on, on Social Security pensioners, who uh, are having a very tough time. And these groups spent day after day and night after night with each other. You can't be in a demonstration 24 hours a day. And the genius of the Occupy movement was that people were, you know, in a space together. And I thought the most important thing about it, the movement, was that they were talking to each other. We're all against, well, I don't know if you all are. Uh, but we're all against capitalism. You know, we're, we, you know, we hate the 1%. All of that, you know, that's not news. That wasn't what kept people together. It was that these very diverse groups of people were spending day and night together. They were organizing the camps. It was an incredibly wet autumn in Britain. Un horrible. So, you know, there's lots of housekeeping that had to be done, and people were doing that. And for the unemployed, it was particularly important because they had something useful to do. They weren't just going and collecting an unemployment check. Now, to me, I mean, the thing about... You got me started on this. Uh, I, uh, the thing about this is that that's what, in the history of the left, the social left was about. How you bind together people uh, interactively. And it contrasted, this is an old split that goes back to the end of the 19th century. This old associationist movements, you know, credit unions, community banks, that all constituted a left that had a very different character from the political left, which was about solidarity, top-down organizing, you know, strikes, manifestations, all of that. It had a completely different character. And for most of the 20th century, the left is focused on politics. Now, of course, there were politics in our Occupy movement. But they were, the politics were really not really the point. It was the, it was community was the, was the point in it. And I think as a broader thing, I'd like to see a rebalancing on the left so that we pay more attention to community and social issues and less to politics, less to policy wonks. I'm not, frankly, very interested in who wins the American election. 
I'm really interested in who wins the local elections. You know? And I think it's just a kind of, we need to have a kind of rebalancing on the left of what's important to us. And I think the Occupy movements were part of that. To what extent do you feel race and gender might also, and class, really can inform um, the development of, uh, of the feelings of cooperation uh, that you were describing developmentally at the beginning of your talk? Yeah. Um, and my context for it is that while I recognized um, what you were describing, I also dis very much disidentified with it as a woman of color. Um, and so I grew up uh, the daughter of a white male but raised in a Chinese-American household in San Francisco. Wow. And I... Um, I'm yeah. currently the chapter president of the California Faculty Association at San Francisco State University, and um, organizing faculty is often described as like herding cats, right? right. Um, but in the work that we do, I've noticed that it's really important to have what you've described as this dialogic skill, right? Yeah. Um, and so um, I've... <laughs> As a union president, I have to sign my emails in solidarity, but it has always rubbed me the wrong way. So in your last line, <laughs> your last line gave me a new sign-off, right? Because I think that in cooperation is a much more accurate description of what yeah. we actually do. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's not as it's not as rousing, is it? In <laughs> uh, 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 this, I'll obsess about. You know, I like to write, so. Well, you know, do you think it was maybe what we lost sight of in what we call identity pol politics was the fact that all of us are many identities at the same time. That's, that's always what checked me about, about like, of course, the, you can make a cartoon of that, right-wing people do that. But what... I have to admit to a certain kind of unease about what in the 80s and 90s was identity-based politics, just because every human being is so many different identities at the same time. Um, the problem with the argument I'm making to you about this is that if you have enemies, they may reduce you to just one of those dimensions. And then you get forced onto their territory if they say, well, as a, I don't know, black woman, this is what you're like. And you say, as a black woman, I'm not like that. You know, then you're forced into their territory. But I, I, I don't know. I, I think we have to somehow resist that kind of stereotyping. And I just don't think it, particularly in the long run for people, you know, as people's lives mature. Um, they, there's so many overlays of different kinds of experience that to self-identify yourself with just one strand I think does yourself a disservice. You know? So I'm very sympathetic to your problem. Uh, and herding cats can be done. You know, it's a skill. I mean, you know that as a union organizer. Uh, in the SIEU, which is a service workers in, uh, union that I belong to, we have 
in a less kind of emotionally charged way, we've got people who do lots of services, from people who do mental labor like me, such as it is, to people who do real work like cleaning bedpans. And you know, do you know what I mean? We have many different kinds of services, and people speak very different languages. And I'd say the good thing about our union is that we've never tried to get a cookie cutter to say this is what the service worker thinks. So we're less forceful sometimes, but we're more realistic, particularly for our older workers. You know. When uh, individuals, agencies from outside that immediate right. community, from the larger Los Angeles community, with more privileges come in, of course they always come in saying they're coming with the spirit of cooperation. Right. Unfortunately, what they seem to mean by cooperation is you cooperate with us, what, I, what we tell you to do. Yeah. And they don't down. understand that that brings yeah. a certain degree of resentment in a sense that, you know, you, yeah, you feel our pain, but you really don't get what you're going yeah. through. Uh, Could you respond to that? Well, I'll respond to both parts of that. I hated doing this. Um, labor arbitration stuff and uh, I've never worked uh, I've, I, I like to write, that's what I do and I'm, I've never really worked full time as an academic until about 10 years ago and I just um, I would be a terrible psychiatrist and I was a very bad negotiator because I got bored, I got impatient I, I just you have to have a certain kind of good Anybody who's a good community worker has to have uh, a kind of, um, I, I don't know, it's a particular kind of gift which I didn't have, but I understood the issues, this economic issues. But I, um, and I think it's, an, I, I don't tell you this just because it's my autobiography, but I think it's an, a kind of important thing about this you do need to know what you can't give to other people. You know? And, um, you know, I'm as left as they come, but I knew this was something I just... Uh, it wasn't in my character to, to do that. And I think that's also... In a, you know, we're, we're not... If it becomes kind of moral obligation, then you're sometimes not true to yourself. I mean, this, the second part of, your, uh, of, of what you said is so important because, you know, if you go back in the history of, say, social work, that's a profession that started as charity work. It was mostly middle-class women going into poor neighborhoods to give moral uplift to the, to, to the poor. And you can absolutely simply snoot that and say it should have come within the community. But that wouldn't be fair to what those women did. They could have sat at home, you know. But it is a problem that in, on the social left happens again and again and again, that a lot of the people who have the verbal skills, who have the contacts to raise money from enlightened 
organizations like this gas company are not in are not local activists and they have the middle class people have the networks contacts etc so it's a complicated issue and i think for organizers um the only way for middle class organizers to deal with that is to be aware of it and be very modest about it. The most impressive thing to me about Obama as a, as a community organizer for those few years he did it was that he always said, I'm not one of you, I can't tell you what to do. And I thought that was a pretty impressive thing to do. Um, but I think if you, if you're exterior to the community, you come in. I mean, it it obliges a kind of modesty. That it, the skill is in yourself, in, or that that in yourself that will allow you to cooperate. You still have to justify to other people why you're there. Which is a big, which is a big issue. So are you just? Is this charity? You know, it's a sort of suspicious thing. People have to work that out through exchange. Nobody's asked me about Obama and cooperation. Would somebody ask me that question? <laughs> ask me that question. Uh, it's related to that. My name is uh, Rod Ali. I don't know if you've been following the uh, essays that Stanley Fish has been writing recently about the culture wars in the New York Times. He, last week he wrote about this. My question, uh, I'm really intrigued. First of all, fantastic talk. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm intrigued by the, um, your second strategy, which is, which you were talking about, declarative sentences and the subjunctive. My question is, how do we bridge this, call it, divide between, let's say, the rhetoric of a religious-based politics, uh, which is, you know, which feels persecuted today. Yesterday, the Catholic di Archdiocese yeah. released a paper saying that they're being persecuted in America. Uh, how do you bridge that divide with people like Richard Dawkins and others who are quite uh, militantly um, against a certain kind of resurgence of religious right. America, using because the, the the vocabulary, so to speak, of the two groups is entirely alien in many ways. I mean, considerably, how do you create the legitimacy that one gets from a book and another gets from a very different system? Uh, it's quite different. So right. how, because that seems to be uh, a much bigger problem now. Across classes, you have poor whites who are much more religious uh, and so on and so forth, and they are unfortunately speaking not, as you rightly say, about the class issues, but you know, some of the major concerns for them are gay marriage and right. war on terror and so on and so forth. So how have we, of course, you know, Fox TV, how, how have they sort of convinced them that the most important issue in their life is not bread and butter issues? And then how do we bridge this divide between... Yeah, I think... I, I, well, I don't know the answer to your question. The only thing I could contribute to it is that I've been very struck in the evangelical community that the evangelical community is moving beyond what we think about as evangelical ideology. And um, that is to say that um, evangelicals who were anti-gay, you know, the, the usual, pro-gun, the whole 
thing. That seems to be something that within the evangelical community is evolving into something else, which is less confrontational and, in my view, more Christian, which is to say that you are accepting of others in their difference because we're all in this fallen, terrible state that, that we're in. Uh, and that's a, that's a positive sign, you know? I think it's important about evangelicals not to make a cartoon out, out of them. And similarly with Catholics, there is, as you all know, there is an enormous split between what parishioners, how parishioners behave and how the hierarchy be, behaves. I mean, um, on, on gay issues as well as, as issues of, of, you know, sexual, you know, uh, 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 um, uh, uh, conduct between heterosexuals. So it's, I think it's important not to, I, I guess what I'm reacting a little against is the notion that the new implacable opposition is, you know, the religion, you know, the, relig the religion is the right and that it's, um, they're uncooperative, et cetera, ideological, and so on. To me, it seems a more complicated picture. And I don't know, maybe others of you have the same, uh, I don't know for Judaism, but certainly a Catholic community is not what the bishops say that Catholics feel, you know? It's an incredible divide. So, uh, but beyond how you deal with, with you know, right-wing um, people like Santorum, I don't know. Yeah. I recently read an article, uh, it, it, I think it was Thomas Friedman, and he was talking about um, uh, how the, so much of community, especially local community in this country, was organized you know, around religious community. Right. And, and he posed the question of, like, what are the secular institutions as the country becomes seemingly more secular? I know you can't tell that by the recent elections, but, but um, or the political environment. But as the country becomes uh, more secular, I'm wondering what you might say to that. Like, what are the, 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 yeah, I mean, that's basically it. And then the Obama question. <laughs> um. Well, I don't know how to respond since I am religious. You, you know, I, I um, um, uh, it, to me, this is uh, religion isn't a threat. You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what. Uh, I, I think there's certainly in the church there is. It's in itself in profound turmoil, and it has a rotted hierarchy. And the problem for Catholics is that it is an inherently hierarchical religion with a, you know, with a rotted out hierarchy. And, you know, things will have to transform themselves in some very fundamental way. For instance, the infallibility of the Pope may be something that has... It, it only existed, it didn't exist until the 19th century. Maybe we're going to have to get rid of it again. But 
I think the notion that somehow religion, I, just speaking for myself, you know, that religion is a threat seems, and that secular forms of cooperation are a better deal is for me not, um, it's not a, something I, I think. I, I mean, if I give you a theological um, statement for this, the notion that all human beings are damaged, which is the fu- you know, fundamental tenet of uh, Christianity, is the basis on which uh, cooperation becomes both necessary and moral because it supposes kind of basic humility in, in the believer. Now, a lot of what we see, you know, with these kind of right-wing Santorum-like people, there isn't much humility there. And I would say that they're not very good Christians. But that's a whole other discussion. Maybe we have that over a drink. I think that's it. Now, I'm so glad you asked about the Obama question. <laughs> Uh, um, this is a very complicated issue we all know that because of him we all know that the right was more determined to destroy him than to hold the country together during this time of terrible economic situation um and I am still firmly convinced that the reasons for that are basically racial. The fact that 40% of the country still thinks he's a secret Muslim, and what is it, 30% think that he's not, via his birth certificate is fake, something like that. What I hear behind that is, is just racism. Now, you know. We have a question to your left. Hold on, no, I haven't finished. (laughs) This is a long long answer to his question. But I think Obama is an interesting case of one way not to practice cooperation, which is the notion that in a cooperative situation you split the difference. (coughs) That is that you have to make a negotiation work to the point where you'll give away everything as long as you can you know arrive at that dialectical conclusion of having a result and it's a view of cooperation which is which is very restricted it's the notion that that basically cooperative things means always splitting the difference once you take and it's compounded. He's a very aloof personality. Doesn't schmooze much with senators. He would have been a great Supreme Court justice. You know, fantastic. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. But I, th- I think part of the reason he had this is that he, he, this split the difference mentality, was not a lack of conviction in himself but that he was too far removed from the people who were his enemies to find other kinds of modus vivendi. Diplomats, for instance, oftentimes keep diplomacy going even when they know they're never going to get a treaty. They keep the ball in the air. 
really good diplomats. Hillary Clinton is like that, you know? She hasn't, she's a fantastic negotiator because she hasn't got herself into this trap of thinking that let's give and give and give until we arrive at a point where we can reach agreement. So that's why I wanted you to ask the Obama question because it's an example of, it's a, it's a too restricted model for cooperation, split the difference. There are many, many other ways to do it. Thank you. <laughs> or Is comments. there a relationship between a country's um, cooperation quotient, let's say it's low, yeah. and the divorce rates? You know, so our divorce rates go up as your quotient is lower? Is there any relationship huh. there? I never thought about that. <laughs> that's really interesting. Do you think that's true? Well, it seems to me in any relationship, whether it's between people or organizations, or wow. you know, you needed to have those skills you mentioned. Right. And if you don't have those skills, your relationships can't have a hard time. <laughs> I think you started me on my next book. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, I, it's a really in, interesting idea. But do you believe it? I'm just curious. I suspect it would. Yeah, I, I, I so don't do know. I. I can't tell you. But you know, if, if all you, what you say is true, that you actually yeah, measure yeah, this yeah. quotient, A, and B, those three um, skills, uh, right, and right, I do right. believe that's true, are, are important to, to dialogue and maintain communication yeah, yeah, relationships. Yeah. And, and most relationships, a lot of relationships yeah, fail yeah. because they break down in the communication because and people don't cooperate. It seems like they kind of fall Yeah, no, no, it, it makes... It makes a lot of sense. I think I think it is might be my next book. <laughs> Anyhow, thank you very much. If you have two people, one is being very declarative, instead of discussing something, yeah. one being very declarative, and one's trying to keep the space open. How does the person who's trying to keep the space open force space open if, if the other person is being declarative? Do you just walk away or are there ways techniques you can force the space open? Well, Ateo works in labor negotiation. You've got two people, you've got two groups at a table, okay? They're like this, non-negotiable demands, right? The next thing, the next stage to get the negotiation going is you put them in two separate rooms. And now, this is the horrible thing about this. Now they're in two separate rooms and you are this little carrier pigeon going from one room to another. And you're not being quite an honest messenger. <laughs> because you're saying, well, I just spent two hours with them telling me, you know, that they, the business is going broken. You know, the pension fund is, you know, they can't pay another penny more. But I think if you uh, were to take another tack, that we might uh, loosen them up. Uh, the people you're saying this to, the union representative, hadn't, it maybe doesn't even believe that, that, but it's a way of separating people so that they're not confrontational with this untrustworthy messenger or canny messenger. And then there's enough sort of stuff that opens up that they can come back into the room together and then they have to go, you know, over all the things. Were you saying, were you know, you're not saying. You know, you get a lot of mess. 
And at that point, oftentimes, what seem like non-negotiable demands begin to loosen up. But the technique is a pretty straightforward one, which is you don't, when, when people are absolutely like this, you don't let them keep duking it out, you know? You put them in, give them a kind of distance where you develop the ambiguity. So, you know, it's a try, uh, diplomats do the same thing as labor negotiators. You know, it's a tried and true thing. It's not a quite honest procedure, you know, but it's the only way to, it's like a log jam that you have to uh, get out of. Well, thank you all for being such a wonderful audience.